Does anybody get the new iPhone this week? The iPhone XS? Anybody? Nobody? But there are like lines of people waiting for those, right? Does anybody have an iPhone? If you got one, raise, raise it up. Raise, raise your iPhone. Okay, I see some iPhones out there. I don't have an iPhone. Mine's a Samsung. Yeah, it's an older Samsung. It's the, it's the S6. I've had it for a few years. But it was a good phone when it was brand new. It still gets the job done, right? It's a whole lot different than the phone I had when I was 10. The phone I had when I was 10 was clear and it plugged into the wall. I, I sold something at school and earned enough points to cash in those points as a reward to get this really cool plastic phone that you could see all of the insides to, right? That was kind of cool. Anybody remember those? Some of you, when you were 10, the idea of having a phone anywhere in your house might have been, what in the world? Or it might have been just one phone. Some of you, when you were 10, the phone in your house had a 42-foot twisty cord on it that you could take to the other end of the house and stretch it, and then you'd come back, and it'd be all kinked up and knotted and everything. So the idea of having a phone that costs $1,000 that you have to replace every two or three years is a little ludicrous, right? But all, hey, I just put, I'm going to take a picture of y'all. Smile. Smile. Smile again because it didn't take. The idea of being able to carry a camera, a phone, a calendar, a computer, all these things in your, this little thing right here does more than the first computer would ever imagine doing. It's all right there. And some people pay $1,000 for them. Some people don't realize they're paying $1,000 for them because they're paying on monthly payments. $42 a month for this or for that. I and mean, if you've got one of the bigger ones, the, 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 the iPhone 10, the big one plus, that's like uh, having an iPad in your pocket. Yeah, you're paying like $48 a month for that thing. What, 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 about, what about, anybody got the Apple Watch? Anybody? Got a few of those out there. You know, $350, $400 for a watch. Christy bought me this watch for Christmas a couple years ago. It's an Armatron. They got the name for it because it goes on your arm, right? <laughs> Armatronics, right? There there it is. I don't know. It's probably about 50 bucks. But, you know, fr from the looks of it, from the outside, if you didn't know that this was stainless steel and not silver or whatever, I could pass this off as a Rolex. $1,500, dollars $2,000 for a watch, for a timepiece. I brought my golf clubs today. Believe it or not, I play golf a little bit. And by a little bit, I mean once in the last eight years. That was to take Pastor Ben on an exit interview when he was uh, going to Kentucky. See, so the thing about golf clubs is there are a lot of brands of them. And some people have golf clubs like what I have that sit in that bag in my office all the time. One of these drivers you can get, brand new Callaway driver for about five hundred dollars. 
They have some, some less expensive ones, but about $5,000, about $500. I priced out a set of irons this week. If you don't know anything about golf, see, I'm talking about golf because the Tour Championship was just right over here in Atlanta this week at Eastlake. And uh, Tiger Woods had an incredible eagle putt, and uh, it, was, it was a good term. I don't, know who, I don't know who's in the lead today because, you know, I watched football yesterday because, you know, it's a little more exciting than golf. But um, I priced out some irons. Because I figure if I'm going to play golf about once every eight years, I should probably get a new set of irons. I bought these irons in Athens, Georgia. I have been to Athens before, believe it or not. The best thing that ever came out of there were these golf clubs. And um, I bought them and played against sports, the entire set of them, for about $75. Because they were used. Well... This was also back in 2002 when I was in college, and I priced out, these are Golfsmith irons. Golfsmith, they custom make your irons, your, your clubs just for you. They measure your arms, your, your hips, your weight, how you swing and everything. And this set of irons brand new would have been about $600, but I, set up, I priced out a new set this week, $1,100. I thought, man, that's a good investment, $1,100 could buy me some clubs that I'll get to use again in eight more years, right? And next time I go play golf with Pastor Ben, I won't shank one and almost hit a van. You know, it's, it's just, it's good stuff. But you know, some people have a bag like this that costs $150, $200, three of these $500 clubs up here and $1,000 worth of clubs there. And then every time they use them, they have to pay $100 to $150 because they're playing at a course that's kind of nice. Sometimes you could do like I did in college and play the $5 course. And be able to play. Some of you are sitting there and you've got a couple of these in your house. Gaming systems. For all you that think I know nothing about video games, you're right. But um, I do have an Xbox One. Or sorry, that's an Xbox 360. I apologize. I don't even know the difference between them. When this thing first came out, it's about 400 bucks. 450 bucks. Moms and dads were waiting for hours at Walmart and Toys R Us and Best Buy to get in line to buy one of these for Christmas about seven or eight years ago when they came out, the Xbox 360. We got this from free, for free for one of our deacons at our last church because they had bought the next biggest, best Xbox. But see, the thing about the Xbox, and, 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 and you know, here I got the, the Wii, this was Christy's Christmas present after we got married. Yeah, it was nice. Let me tell you what I did with it. So, so I, I bought this and a couple of games, and I wrapped each one of them up individually, and I put them in a huge like shop back box and, wrap, and put a couple of quilts in there and whatever to kind of throw it off because it was full all the way. And then I wrapped that, and I put it under the Christmas tree the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And for a month, she's like, what's in the box? What's in the big red box? And she couldn't figure it out. It was the greatest thing ever. But still, when that thing was news, 300 bucks. All you kids out there, this is what we had growing up. This is a Game Boy. It's got Paperboy in it. And yes, if the batteries were in here, there are batteries in there. March 2011, they probably don't work. Um, but this thing is actually still functional. It came on. That is amazing. I saved up yard mowing money and paid 80 bucks for that when I was in fourth grade. But see, 
think about all of those is you've got to pay more money to use them because you either have some sort of online, I don't even know what they do now. They have the online networking for all this. And you've got to pay, but you've got to buy games and games and games and games. And there are people that have so much money invested in these games that it's a little bit ridiculous. I saw one picture online one time of somebody's gaming area where they had nine different video game systems and about a hundred games each. And it was a full wall that they had custom built shelves to go and to use. That's a lot. I thought about bringing Mercedes in here. They wouldn't fit through the door and I don't know that our cleaning crew would be too happy about it. So then I thought, well, maybe I can ride a Harley Davidson in there, a really nice one, one of the $45,000 ones. But again, it's kind of loud in a room like this. And you're like, okay, why are you showing us all this stuff? Why are we talking about all this stuff? Because the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, is it wrong for us to have nice things? Is it wrong for Christians to have nice things? things, whether they're tickets to football games, whether they're expensive cars, whether they're video game systems, whether they're golf clubs, whether they're watches, whether they're phones, is it wrong? Is it wrong for Christians to have nice things? Man, way to ask a tense question, Evan. The short answer is no, but we're going to see why. As we look in the book of 1 Timothy and talk about generosity this morning. We've looked at ownership. We've looked at the, the, the greatness of our God. We've looked at all that he has done for us. But this morning, I want us to look at the idea of generosity out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we wrap up this I Give series. As we wrap up this time, as we focus a little bit more on what it means to be stewards and to give according to the plan, the purpose, the work, the word of God in us. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for giving us stuff to enjoy. We thank you that we can look in your word and see that you are the one who richly provides things that we can enjoy. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to mostly enjoy you above all things. For you are God. You are our Savior. You are our Creator. You are the supreme being. You're the one that gave us our, your son Jesus to die for our sins. You're the one that, that loves us more than we will ever know how love could operate and function. Teach our hearts, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let me just kind of be up front. I'm not going to talk about tithing this morning. Okay. 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about tithing and how we give because God's given in his ownership. And, and I do believe in tithing. I, I do believe that it is, it is necessary as we seek to honor God with how he has provided for us. I do believe that the 10% is, is, is just like the bare minimum of what we should be doing. But, but that's not what today is about. Today is about generosity because, because the gospel continually takes us to the plus, right? So, so Jesus continues to take us to the plus. So he takes from the bare minimum to the kick it up a notch. You, you remember Emeril Lagasse? Uh, the, the, the chef, he used to have his little cooking show on the Food Network 20 years ago before they started making cakes and decorating all that. Like, it was real food that would sustain you and not something that would just be sweet and nice for a little while. And, and he would always say, all right, we're going to kick it up a notch. He would throw some cayenne pepper in there. Bam, there it is. Well, that's kind of what Jesus does with all things. You remember as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was continually taking it to the next level. It was, okay, um, you've heard, don't be angry. Well, I'm telling you, if, I mean, you, you've heard don't murder, don't kill. But I'm telling you, if you're angry enough, you've already committed the, the murder in your heart. You, you've heard don't commit adultery, but if you're looking at someone with lust in your heart, in your mind, in your eye, then, then you've already committed that adultery. It's taking to the next level. And I believe that what the gospel compels you and me to do together is to take giving to the next level to generosity. So it's not just, okay, I tithe. It's the generosity. It's the above and it's the beyond. And I think that's where Peter, or excuse me, where Paul takes us here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He takes us to this understanding of how do we develop a life that is marked by generosity. And, and I want to use that word develop intentionally because I do not expect that this is going to be one of those sermons where you sit there and go, oh, okay, I'm going to go do that now. When it comes to giving and when it comes to generosity, when it comes to stewardship, this is a heart condition that develops within us. It's not just a simple flip the switch. It might be for you, and praise God for that. Praise God that you can look at a, a passage or hear a message on, on giving and on generosity, and it's like, well, there it is. And you go, for most of us, it is a patterned progress of development. And that's what we're going to focus on is how this development starts. And the first thing we see in this passage of scripture from Paul is that we are to assess what God has given to us. We have to assess what God has given to us. Look at what he says in verse 17. His wording is everything here. He says, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There are a couple of things in this verse that really jump out to me that I think are important for us to grasp as we consider developing a life marked by generosity. As we consider what the gospel shares in our heart for what it means to be a generous person, a generous giver, one who is marked by this level of this, this, uh, this idea of generosity. And the first is that he says, he says that God has richly provided. He, he has provided. I'm not going to re-preach my ownership message. It'll be online if it's not already. I haven't checked. It'll be online from last week and you can check that and see that God really owns everything. 
he made it. It's already his. He gives it to us. And so, so we have to come to that first understanding that God has given it to us. God has provided. God has placed it in our care for our use. But the second thing that he says there, for us to enjoy. Enjoy. This is a statement of pleasure. I want you to understand that God is not anti-pleasure at all. He's not. Some would have you believe that if you're going to love God, you have to deny any type of external pleasure, anything that's out there. Now, look at the world God made us. Look at the very command that God gave Adam and Eve. He says, hey, look at all this cool stuff I made. Go love it. Go enjoy it. Go have fun with it. He just put the restriction. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And Satan slithered in there. And we're going to cover this again in a few weeks in more depth uh, as we get into Genesis starting uh, next week. Um, But he slithered in there and says, hey, God doesn't want you to enjoy things. He doesn't want you to be happy. He slithers in and issues this lie that's not true. And throughout all the generations subsequent to that, it's like, well, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't want me to enjoy things. God doesn't want me to enjoy life. God wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to enjoy the good things that he made. He wants you to enjoy nice things. But he wants you to have your hope in He's not against us enjoying the things of the world. We cannot place our hope and find our identity and find meaning and significance in those things, whether they are people or relationships or items or or golf clubs or video games, whatever it is. It's a creation, not the creator. And he says here, he says, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We've got to assess what God has given us. Why? Because when we start, look at the idea that God has given it to us, our, we're, we're looking at it through the, uh, um, through the scope, through the lens of ownership. See, who owns it? Ownership will drive our attitude about something. If something exists because of me and for me and I am the sole possessor, the sole owner, I'm going to use it as my own for my own utility. This, this is what happens as we look at wealth and as we uh, look at riches. If we look at it through the lens of God's ownership and he has placed it in our stewardship that we could use, it's going to change the way we think about it. It's going to change our attitude towards what we have. It's no longer about me and amassing for me and having for me and making sure that I... You remember Nebuchadnezzar? He's over in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was the king in Babylon, and he was, a, he, was, he was a wealthy king. He was a mighty king. And there's that passage in the book of Daniel that should be a little unsettling for us if we want to start thinking about who owns what, where he's out there, and he's on the portico, and he's looking out over his kingdom. He's like, yep, I'm awesome. I surely am. You see all this? It's because of me. It's because I'm a big deal. It's because I'm the man. It's because I can do this for me. It's because of me. The Spirit of God said, no, no, it's not. 
this very night, you're going to be driven from your kingdom. And it goes on in the book of Daniel and says that he was driven out into the wilderness and his nails grew long and his hair grew like a mammoth. And he was out there licking the dew off the grass. And he says, woe is me for thinking it was about me. I know there's a true and mighty God. Kind of makes me think of the guy over in the book of Luke that Jesus tells us about. The, the rich guy who's like, man, you know what? I'm so awesome. I'm so rich. that All my barns are full. I've got all this stuff for me and for me and for me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a bigger barn. This barn's not bigger. We could translate barn into storage unit at the storage place. I've got too much stuff in this storage unit, so I've got to rent a bigger storage unit. Just saying. Could throw it out there. I've got so much stuff, my barns are overflowing, so what I'm going to do for me and for myself, for my stuff that is all about me, is I'm going to build a bigger barn. And Jesus says that, you fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you and what is going to become of your well. See, if our attitude is that it's we own it and it's us and us and us, we're going to use it for us, for our pleasure, for our glory, for, for who we are. We're going to find our hope and our significance in that. But if our ownership, if our attitude is that God owns it, it's going to give us a different attitude because our attitude about it will determine how it functions. Ownership drives attitude. Attitude determines function. If our attitude is that this is God's and he has placed it in my possession for the time being to use for his glory, it's going to change the way we look at it, the way we use it. Whether it's an Xbox or a million dollars. Whether it's a golf club or a car. Whether it's a computer or, or a window. I don't know. Whatever it is. The function of it will be determined by how we view it. Our attitude of it. And, and, and Paul says, as for the rich in this age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't let their attitude to be higher than it should be. And, 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 and let me just stop a second because I know there's probably that thought in here. Hey, Paul's talking to rich people and that's not me. Anybody ready to self-identify as rich? Nobody. Well, let's assess what God has given us. Let me give you a fun exercise to do this afternoon. Go ahead and write this in the margin of your outline. Globalrichlist.com globalrichlist.com. That's a website where you can go in and you can enter how much money you make and it will tell you where in the world you rank as the how wealthy you are. You want to hear something really, really staggering? If you make $1,305 a year, $1,305 per year, roughly $109 a month, you are exactly 50%. You are the exact 50%. 50% of the population has more, of the world has more money than you. 50% of the population has less money than you. How about that? If you make $25,480 a year, which for a family of five is the poverty threshold in America, you are in the top 1.2% of the world's population in wealth. It's kind of crazy, right? 
If you make, if you make any more than $38,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world in wealth. Kind of changes the perspective of the rich in this present age. Now, I understand you got bills. I understand that you've got, you've got uh, doctors, you've got prescriptions, you've got clothes, you've got kids, you've got food, you've got cell phones, you've got internet, you've got TV. You've... Wait a second. I'm going beyond the necessities, aren't I? See, we have to assess what God has given us and so that we can see that he owns it and we've got to use it for him. That is how we take that first step towards developing a life marked by generosity. But then Paul goes on just a little bit more and shows us that we are to understand what God expects of us. See, at no point in this passage has he showed us or told us, hey, uh, if, if you're rich, if you've got nice things, you're in sin for having nice things. No, he says... He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's just what we do with that. So now we've got to come from assessing that, okay, God really has blessed us. God really has given us something awesome, something amazing, has really given us more than what so many people in the world have. And I understand the cost of living in America is a whole lot more than the cost of living in most of the world. I get that. But we've got to assess and let's understand. He says there in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. There are a few things that he gives us here. Doing good, being rich in good works. So, so are, we, are we no more for the, the money we have or the way we use what God has given us for his glory, for his kingdom, for his benefit, for his power? To be generous and to be ready. to You, you see that? To, to be generous and ready to share. Those are marks of his expectation for us. So maybe the operational question we have to ask ourselves, that we have to ask of, of, of this as we start looking at the understanding of what he expects of us is, how can I bless someone as God has blessed me? How can I bless someone? Having things from God is a blessing, right? Be, being able to have three meals a day, to, to go to sleep in a bed, to have heat or air, have heat and air, to have transportation, to have education, to, to be in a school system, to, to have a job. These are all good blessings. So, so how can I use what God has done to bless me? That's what it says. He says, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Okay, so, so now we're looking at the expectation is, okay, God's blessed me, so I need to be on the lookout for ways to bless someone else. And it's not, I can't give you a cut and dry method of how to do that. Because I don't know what God's put in your life. I don't know what obstacles that you face each and every day in order to develop this, to, to wrap your mind around this understanding. It looks different. We've got, we've got different generations. We've got different socioeconomic backgrounds right here in our church. So it can't look the same for person A as it does for person B each and every time. So what we can do is we can look at the Bible for some examples. 
We can look at some biblical examples of what the, how the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, talks to us about, about money, finances, about just being generous and how we use. And so let's start at the beginning, sort of the beginning. Let's start in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 22, verse 29. I don't expect y'all to flip these, just write them down as you have opportunity. It says in Exodus chapter 22, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your ox and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Now this is talking specifically about the offering within the context of the worship gathering. Or, or even in our context, our honor understanding, the, the tithe. But the principle here is don't delay to give out of what you have. The, the idea here is that there's a need and so it must be met and so, so we, we don't delay. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, I'll put that off. I'll, I'll do that later. I'll, I'll you know, check with me next week or I forgot my checkbook or you don't take debit card or all these things that we can, we can put out there to, to create the delay, right? Well, I don't get paid till next Friday. Well, that's a pretty good delay, you know? I'm not saying, hey, give to somebody if you don't have it. I'm saying what the Bible says. Don't delay from the offer from the fullness of your harvest. You can't offer from the harvest until you harvest it. Well, then let's flip over to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 gives us a really cool picture of generosity for the people of God. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. What God was doing was making provision from his people that had for those who had not. Even the sojourner, the ones that weren't the people of God, the ones that were coming through, we can go over to the book of Ruth and find a great example of this where Ruth and Naomi are coming back from their land back into the, the homeland to where Naomi was from. And, and, and so, so she, she sends Ruth out and says, go to Boaz's field and gather from the edges. See, the reason most of us cannot be generous is we have plowed to the edges. We have gleaned all there is because sometimes the pickings are slim. And I understand that. But we have not created enough buffer, enough edge room to where we have the opportunity to be generous when it presents itself. So maybe a starting place for you, if you can't look at your budget and simplify it a whole lot to create some edge at the, at some border to the edge of the field, to create some buffer there, $5 a pay period. $5 that, that, that you could stick in your wallet or in your purse and say, okay, that $5 is there. So when somebody, anybody that, that has a need, I, I can be generous. It's not going to solve the world's problems, I promise you. But it's a step towards generosity. It's a step towards making that edge, that room in the edge. See, we have the opposite problem in our culture and our civilization we forgot where the edge of the field was, and so we had to go borrow from somebody else's field. Maybe that, that, that 
that edge of that field should not end with MasterCard or Visa, but it does. We, we go beyond the edge, and therefore we limit our ability. Over the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, if one of you among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and say, the seventh year, the year of the release is near and your look, I look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing, but he cried out to the Lord again. Against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for they will never cease to be poor in the land. And it's for that reason I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Now, now understand, I completely understand this is civil law for, for Israel. And this isn't ceremonial or moral law. This isn't, you know, binding, you know, we're the United States of America. We're not Israel. But we are the people of God. And so the law of God applies to the people of God, whether you're, you know, ceremonial or civil law Israel or you're 21st century Baptist church in America. And I'm not saying that you have to, that you have to just empty everything that you have and go into debt helping somebody. But the principle of being open and willing to, to help when there is a need it comes back to how close to the edge of the field did you glean? How much is there? If there's nothing there, you can't, you can't help. But notice that he says here in this passage of scripture that you should not have the unworthy thought in your heart and say, the seventh year is near. See, for the people of Israel, every seven year was a year of release. It was the year of Jubilee. So, so like tomorrow, if you loaned me $42,000, um, I would have under the time of Israel, I would have until the year of Jubilee to pay back as much as I could. So like if, if it's the, the year after the year of Jubilee, I've got six years to pay you back $42,000. And I'm saying, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay you $7,000 a year so I'll have it all finished up and you be paid back by that day. Well, if I come to you and the year of Jubilee starts in January and I need $42,000 now, you're gonna be like, well, you can't pay me back. I'm not helping you. I'm gonna have to forgive that debt. I'm not helping you. You see the principle there? They, I'm gonna loan to you and you're, I'm never gonna see that money again, so I'm not gonna give it to you. God says, hey, if you're one of my people, your heart's been changed, so don't let your heart be hard against your brother in need. Take a step towards generosity. I'm not telling you to loan somebody $42,000. I'm asking you to see what the word of God, if you want to loan me $42,000, great, man. Year of Jubilee is next week, so just go ahead and loan it to me. We're asking for that freedom of heart in the spirit of God to bless as God has blessed us. Well, let's go New Testament a little bit. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this. Well, we're not going to start with Jesus, actually. We're going to start with John the Baptizer. 
cousin of Jesus. Close enough, right? He says in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Therefore he said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. And it's out of that harsh statement that the people of Israel said, and the crowds asked him, what do we do? <laughs> you just told us that we're a brood of vipers and that the ax is cutting on the tree. What do we do? So he says, verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, what do we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what are we supposed to do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. See, this is a statement against greed. See, greed creeps into the heart. We don't like to talk about greed. We don't like to consider ourselves to be greedy. But, but, but greed slips in under the guises of being overly cautious. Like the guy said, if you got two tunics, lend to the one who doesn't have one. Well, what happens if I outgrow this tunic? I'm going to need one soon. That's a greedy thought. Well, well what happens if somebody steals my tunic? I'm going to still need one. It's a greedy thought. That's not being cautious. It's being greedy. See, see, greed has its way of sneaking in and it has its opportunity to say, you know what, this is in your possession. Just keep it for you. You might need it someday. You might need, you know how hoarding starts? You might need it someday. You're not gonna use that tinfoil wrapper off that piece of pizza you got at the fair three years ago. Throw it away. You're not going to use that. You're not going to use that size two pair of jeans you wore when you were 18. Now that you're in your 40s, throw them away. Give them to somebody that needs some jeans. Some of you might be able to wear those size two jeans you wore when you were in your, in your teens. I don't know. See, greed has its way of sneaking in and just saying, you know, it's already yours. You just, just keep it. Well, I expect more. I'm, I'm going to demand more. Those are greed statements. I had a conversation with Braden the other day about greed. It was an impromptu conversation. We were talking about baseball. Um, I don't even know how we got on the topic, but we're driving down the road. We're talking about baseball, and we're talking about World Series and playoffs and all these things. We're talking about the Braves making the playoffs um, and, and what all that meant. And, and, I said, and he said, so they made it all those years. I said, yeah, well, they didn't do it in 1994 because there was a strike. He's like, well, what's a strike? I said, basically, it's a statement of greed. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, so I got into players' unions and I got into, I got into uh, to contracts and agents. I was just like, these guys are making millions of dollars to play baseball and they wanted more money. These owners are making millions of dollars having a baseball team play games and they wanted to keep more money. The strike's about greed, right? It's that sneaking in and saying, you know what? What God has given is not quite enough. I demand more. What I have in my possession is not enough. I want more. And so John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Resist greed. Press it back. 
But what about what Jesus says over Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25, I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's really, really long. But in chapter 25, verse 31 to 46, he gives this long statement about the final judgment. But right in the center of it, it says there in verse 35 and 36, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous said, Lord, when do we do this? When do we feed you? When we're thirsty? When do we see you as a stranger? And he says, truly, if you did it to one of the least of these, you did it for me. And then to the other group, the group he's kicking out, he says, you didn't do all these things. You resisted. Bearing fruits and keeping repentance, being generous is looking at with people that have need and saying, okay, I'm, I'm here to help any way I can. I am here to help. If it's $5, it's $5. If it's $50, it's $50. If it's $1,000, it's $1,000. If it's just use my car for a few days until you get back on your feet. It's whatever you have in your hand. Generosity is developed as we make statements and stances towards what we can do with what we have to glorify God. Let's keep going. Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way for what? All of your generosity. You see that? Well, I, I can't afford, I don't have, I can't. You will be enriched, you will be blessed, you will have the hand of God on you because of your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And then verse 13 says, by their approval of this service, they will what? Glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. You, you see what goes hand in hand there for Paul in 2 Corinthians 9? Confessing the gospel and Generosity. Giving as God has given to us. Understanding the ownership. Assessing all that he's given. And seeking to be a blessing for all. And then the last passage I want to share with you. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Just, just uh, 11 days after Jesus ascended. The disciples are gathered in this house. A little bit terrified of what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit fills the room just as Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon you and it did and they went from there and Peter who was scared of a little servant girl at the fireside when Jesus was being tried is now standing boldly in front of everybody in Jerusalem and said you know what the Jews killed Jesus the son of God that he rose again and I'm here to testify of the greatness of this God and people are like man that is awesome that is the goodest the goodest the greatest thing I have ever heard I need that Jesus I need that forgiveness and he goes and it says that they were continuing to come. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves. Sorry, verse 41 says, those who received his word were baptized and they were added to that day to, that day, to their number, 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people responded to this message of the gospel. And it says after that, they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's verse 45 here. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together, broke bread of their homes and received their food with gladness and generous, with gladness and with generous hearts 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, this community of faith, when the gospel explosion began in the book of Acts, didn't happen because they had pretty church buildings, didn't happen because they had air conditioning, didn't because that happened because they had the most handsome preacher in the world. Yeah? It happened because they were marked by their generous hearts. Because as people had need, they were seeking, how can we fill that need? How can we who who have been blessed a little bit more be a blessing to those that are in need? How can we serve one another? How can we give as God has given to us? How can we use the nice things that God has placed in our lives to, to serve him? To serve others, to, to reach a community in need. Man, I don't know what that means for an Xbox or a Wii. I mean, maybe invite the neighborhood kids over to play games and you share the gospel while you're shooting people on Halo. I don't know. That doesn't work, by the way. But what it does mean is that we seek to meet the needs that we have with one another. Man, we have an awesome opportunity here. We've got a food pantry. Many of you support that with your time. Many of you support that financially. You, you, you give towards that. That's stepping towards generosity. But not everybody shows up at the food pantry. Maybe a way that we can meet this need here is, is this week. Maybe some of you just feel compelled of the Holy Spirit uh, to, to, to go to Kroger or to Publix or to Walmart and just buy like a couple of grocery gift cards that you bring and you drop in the offering plate next week. And as we find out here in the church somebody has need, we give it to them. We supply their need. It's not going to meet all their needs, but it's a step towards generosity. Maybe you take that $5 challenge and you stuck, tuck that away in your wallet. But what we get to do as followers of Christ is demonstrate the power of the gospel over everything, even possessions. See, generosity comes from a heart. Generosity comes from a heart that desires to use God's blessings for God's glory. Whatever God has placed in your life, use it for his glory the nice things that you have, how you can honor him and glorify him by reaching into others and and pouring into others and and using that to demonstrate what he has done for you. 